This is sacred space. And these are moments of mystery. When we come together and with our limits of language and our finite minds, try to articulate and to understand the transcendent. Try to wrap what we can know around the divine. And I hope if any effect that this series has upon us, that it helps us understand our proper station in this world, that we are creatures, not the creator. I hope it helps us appreciate that we are small, not in a shameful or unhelpful way, but we are just scratching the surface of the omniscient, eternal God. We've been in some places this morning, and I'm excited to continue our worship through preaching. Good morning. Yes, it's good to see and hear you. My name is Chad Myers, and uh, I'm our adult discipleship director. I, this is my first time to preach with the choir here, and I loved it. And uh, I was kind of hoping, I didn't know how it worked. Yeah, they did a wonderful job, and that song just, whew. Uh, I was kind of hoping that they stayed up here for the sermon, but they don't have to, so they, they go. Um, because I was thinking, oh, great, there's a choir there, and sometimes I could turn around and I could talk to them, and you might be thinking to yourself, oh, there he goes again, preaching to the choir. Right? <laughs> I thought of that one this morning just for you. <laughs> Some of you have asked me, what are you doing here? <laughs> Not with that tone, but uh, you, you, you've seen the emails. You said, I thought you guys transitioned. Your family moved. You're back in Missouri, but you're here to preach again. What's, what's going on? Help clarify that for us. And I would love to speak just a few moments to that. But first, but first, Johnny woke up and rolled into the kitchen on Sunday morning and said, Mama, I don't want to go to church. Johnny's mom said, Johnny, you hush your mouth. It's Sunday morning. You're going to church. And Johnny said, but Mama, I don't want to go to church, and I got two good reasons. I don't like them, and they don't like me. And Johnny's mom said, I understand, Johnny. Life is hard. But you got to go to church, and I got two good reasons. You're 48 years old, and you're the pastor. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one, too. <laughs> Let me just say this. That is nothing like my experience with you. And I love you. Thank you. I mean that. You are some incredible... You are some of the kindest people that I've ever met. You write me letters about my sneakers. I don't have fancy ones on today, but you do. And I, someone just made a quilt for me. I got it in between services. And I'm like, what? This is this congregation. You're amazing. So we moved here two Mays ago. And it was difficult for my family. And about 10 months in, we came to through prayer and a lot of other things, the conclusion that we needed to get them back to Missouri uh, around some support and people that they knew. So we made that tough decision, but I didn't feel like my relationship with Mount Horeb was over quite yet. 
So I proposed something to the leadership, and you have incredible leadership here. You really, really do. And I said, hey, I love this place. I feel like we have a great relationship and a great trust. I don't want it to be over just yet. So what if we did something like I could be remote for, uh, you know, so many hours a week, and then I could still come back twice a month, and I could preach, and we could just kind of see how that goes, and it would be a super gift to my family while I try to figure out what's next, and that would just really help with the transition. And the leadership said, well, we've never heard of that before, but we'll give it a shot. Yeah, praise God. And I'm so thankful for you and for your leadership. So my hands to you. Thank you so much. And to your leadership. It is my humble privilege to be here with you today as we all try to <laughs> wrap our minds around the mystery of the Trinity. There is a, an Irish Catholic tradition when they're trying to teach their kids about God, they would take a three-leaf clover and they would hold up the three-leaf clover to their children and they say, God is like this, but don't think about it. <laughs> God is three in one. God is one in three. God is three expressions, but one entity. And we think, I don't quite understand. And if we start with that place, we're probably on good footing. One of the first things that we have to say, that we often forget to say, when it comes to the knowledge of God is this, we cannot know God. By sheer definition, he's God. We're not. We cannot know him. There's two branches of knowing in theology, and one is called cataphatic, and the other is called apophatic. I'm trying not to yell. I was really excited to preach this morning. I think I yelled, got all my yellings out at 9 o'clock, but some of it may come at you. I'm just passionate. Cataphatic knowing means this. It's something that we can know by statements of positive affirmation. So we say things like, God is love. God is like a father. God is like a rock. God is like the wind. We are saying things about knowing by positive affirmation. But there's another side of that that we've mostly neglected in the Western history of the church, and that is apophatic knowledge. Saying negations, knowing by way of negative statements, and saying, God is like a father, but he's not literally a father. He's not literally a rock. He's not literally a fire or the wind. And in many ways, He's nothing like us, and he's nothing like the creation. He is creator. We are creatures in creation. He's distinct from. He's transcendent. He's other. We can't know him. Isaiah 55 puts it like this. I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work. For as the sky soars high above earth, so the way I work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is beyond the way you think. My thoughts are not your thoughts in other translations. Thomas Aquinas, a scholastic theologian around 1,000, 1,100, regarded as one of the greatest theologians, his swan song, the Summa Theological, 1.8 million words, 3,000 double-columned pages. He basically, it's his treatise on God. He basically concludes, all my words are dust. We can't really know God. All we can say is what we can't say about him. I'll bring in some John Calvin for you Methobacterians that may be here with us today. I got more laughs at nine, just so you know. <laughs> he said this, he said, God is so other, we're so limited, but God, and so in order for God to speak to us, he has to lisp, he says lisp, he has to talk like a parent to an infant in order for us to even understand what he's trying to say. Job 38, 
when Job and his friends were so certain that they knew who God was and how God works, Job gives them, or God gives them a list of questions in Job 38. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Emphatically, no. And I love Job 39.1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? How do you not love the Bible with that verse in it? Do you know when the mountain boats, goats give birth? No, I don't. Please, sir, I'm going to have some more. No one can know God because no one has seen God. And you say, but what about Moses? I've, he got pretty close. All right. Exodus 33 Moses says, show me your glory. God says, buddy said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. The Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand in a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The way the Hebrew parses out here is that Moses didn't see anything. He just saw where God was. He just missed him. There he went. And we think we can capture God and describe God. And I don't know about you, but the more I grow and the more I get a little bit older, my experience is a lot more like Moses. It's less of experiencing the fullness of the presence of God and sometimes more experiencing his absence. But Moses teaches us to experience his absence is to experience his presence. Think about that. We cannot know God because no one has seen God. This is where we are left without the doctrine of the Trinity. This is where we are left unless there is someone who can show us what God might look like and invite us to take a gaze at who God is. So how do we take this dusty doctrine of the Trinity off the shelf and make it alive for us today? What does it mean for you and I today that God is three in one and we cannot see or know God unless he has made himself seen and known? Unless God first comes to us and says, this is what I am like, this is how I speak and think. This is how I feel. This is what I would do if I were among you. Then we can't know him. But John 14, 9, in Philip, he's one of the disciples along Jesus' ministry. He says to Jesus, show us the Father. Show us God. I know the text. Show us God. And Jesus answered, but don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. That's why we, we are, we're doing in this series, we're doing the Nicene Creed. It's not a shorter creed, if you know what I mean. You stood for the whole thing. It's a bit of a longer creed, but it may not be as familiar to us, so it's kind of good to see it and to say it. And we have to kind of appreciate what the early church was wrestling with. You know, here's this, here's this passage from the Nicene Creed that I, I brought out, and it says this, it's the second part, and it says, and it, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Begotten means he's not made. 
that he's coexisted, co-eternal with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence. This was a trip up for about 300s. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It didn't arrive until about 300. This is the trip up for the people. Like, he's the same essence of the Father. What does this mean? What does this mean? And we have to kind of appreciate where they're coming from. For the Jews who had converted to Christianity, you have Judaism and then you have the birth of Christianity. And it's connected. It's connected, but it takes on distinctions from Judaism. To be faithful to what has been revealed, you have to be what? Monotheistic. We worship one God. There are not many gods. We're not like the Romans. We're not like the pagans. We're not like the Babylonians. We're not like the Assyrians. They think that there's many, many gods and you got to appease the gods in order for your life to go well. Or polytheism or pantheism, they think that God is in everything. So the tree, God is the tree and God is the rock. We're not like that. We're monotheistic. So you have to understand when now they're starting to wrestle with these ideas of who is this Messiah from the line of David who just rose from the grave and in Daniel chapter 7 says, says that he shares glory with the ancient of days. Well, no one shares glory with the Ancient of Days because there's only one Ancient of Days. And now they're grappling with this. And wait a second. You see, you can appreciate the tension. Is there two gods now? How do we be faithful to what God has said and shown us? And what do we do with the Holy Spirit? So they're grappling with this and they're wrestling with this. And finally, they get to these councils and all these theological battles. And they get to these councils of Nicaea and they say, we are going to put something down. It's an illiterate culture. They don't have the New Testament, you know, all bound up and put together. They don't have the Old Testament. They're not reading it like, oh, I'll point to and I'll show you. Jesus is the son of God. So what do they do? They put together a creed in which it has some rhythm to it and they could recite it together. And as they would recite it, it would take root into their psyche and it would be their theological framework with how to function. This is brilliant to me. So we say the Apostles' Creed, bringing in the Nicene Creed for this because it focuses a little more on what is the role of the Son and the Spirit in the Trinity. And somehow, three expressions, one entity, one being, three persons, co-equal, Whew. Mystery, mystery. But we can know God because Jesus has come to show us God. The Son has come to show us the Father. That's what he says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let me put it like this. Who would Jesus spend time with today? If, who would God spend time with today if he were to walk the earth? Look at Jesus. What dinner parties would God go to and who would he rub shoulders with if he were here today? Look at Jesus. How does God interact with the poor and the powerful? Look at Jesus. What does God say to those who are caught right in their sin? Look at Jesus. What does God do with power, authority, love, brokenness? How does God interact with you and me, glorious ruins that we are? Look at Jesus. And so when we look at the scriptures, we put on these, these lenses. We're looking at the scriptures through Jesus because Jesus says to see me is to see the Father. 
you know exactly what God interacts like because you've seen me. And we look at Jesus. John 1.18 says this, no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. I like that translation. He exists at the very heart of the Father, and he's made him plain as day. He's in plain sight for us to see and us to know. And Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. We say this in the Lord's Prayer. We start off, we, we may not uh, necessarily appreciate how offensive the language that Jesus used when he taught his disciples to pray because it's kind of lost on our English ears. We say, our Father. But Jesus, when he would have taught his disciples to pray, he would have used Aramaic. And the word for Father in Aramaic is this. You may know it. Abba. Everybody say that with me. Abba. What do you not need to say it? Teeth. It was a colloquial, common, Aramaic word for a child to come up and sit in their father's lap and say, Daddy. And Jesus used it to describe the omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent, immortal, eternal being, and the religious people stumbled over it hard. You can't talk about God like that. Jesus said, watch me. And if I talk about God like that, you can talk about God like that. So good. I have four kids. We have four kids. They're a little bit older now. But sometimes they still crawl up in my lap and allow me to embrace them. And the sweetest words I ever hear is when they say, Daddy. My sixth grade son let me have lunch with him at his school the other day. That's a big thing. That's a big deal. As a dad, I don't take that for granted. And he requested Subway. I was like, oh, are you eating healthy now? And uh, so I got some Subway, and I went and sat with him. I sat at his table, and he told me exactly what he wanted on it. I want turkey. I want cooked bacon. I want lettuce, but I don't want the sandwich toasted. I want baked lays, and I want Coke. Yes, sir, here we go. So I show up at his school. I'm a little bit early, and we sit down at his table, and he's got a group of guys there. And I just sit with him, and he eats lunch, and I watch him, and we talk, and I listen. And then he gets up to go to recess, and I'm walking him to the recess door, and he realizes I can't go to recess with him. I'm going to go back home and do some work and he turns around to hug me and he lets me hug him and kiss him on the neck and on the cheek. I'll kiss my kids as long as they let me. The son came so that we might feel the kisses of the father on our cheek. Do you feel the love of the father? That's who God is. The infinite has now become intimate. The all-powerful has become approachable. What once felt like a distant spectator has become a shared participant. It was love that drove the father to send the son on a rescue mission. He did not just sit up in the stands and cheer us on from a distance and say, yeah, you, you can do this. Keep up the fight. You're good practice. You know, I know you're getting bloody out there. Keep going. No, 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 no. He gets on the field with us. He gets his hands dirty, so to speak. He's got skin in the game. He's with us. He experiences our victories. He experiences our defeats. 
He experiences our losses, our sorrows. He rejoices with us. He weeps with us. That's what the incarnation means. It was his love that drove him. Napoleon put it like this, I know men, and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds may see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire on love, and at this hour, millions of men will die for him. I've always thought that grace was like a wooing, a relational wooing. God is a gentleman. He's not going to kick down the door and invite himself into spaces of our life where we do not allow him. but he woos and he shows us his kindness and his compassion and he shows us what love is really about and then as we grow in more and more knowledge of him we begin to trust him more and more and we say okay I got darker areas that I wasn't ready to let you in on but now I can let you in because I know that you are the safest person I could ever be in relationship with doesn't manipulate doesn't coerce doesn't power trip that's maturity. That's how you know Jesus is God. The Son is both amplifier and clarifier of the Father. He amplifies who the Father is and clarifies for us who the Father is. With our soul nagging questions, what is God is like? We look to the Son. I was born in 1979, and uh, I was nourished on great 80s movies. So uh, we also place that harm upon our children, and we make them watch great 80s movies. So we've done Karate Kid, you know, all, I don't know, I mean, six of them. Some of them made in the 80s, some of them not, but we take them through that. We took them in the Goonies, uh, Sandlot, all those things, and maybe some of those are out of the 80s, but just stick with me. And we took them through Back to the Future, and they love Back to the Future. One of my favorite scenes in Back to the Future is the opening scene when Michael J. Fox goes to Doc's house, and he takes his electric guitar and he puts it on and he takes the cord and he plugs it in to the amplifier and he puts his shades on and he shows the pick and then the camera backs up and you look at the amplifier that he's actually plugged into and he cranks the volume all the way up and he takes that pick and he slams it down on those strings and it just blows him backwards completely backwards and Jesus came to show us that the sun is God turned up He amplifies for us who God is. It's God's love turned up loud. And he clarifies for us how God works. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. To sit at someone's right hand is a place of shared glory and honor. Here we go again. Who is this who the Ancient of Days shares glory with? And the sun is the radiance of that glory and the representation. The sun shows us that we can know God. We can see God. 
and we can know God. John 14, 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The Son came so that we could know the Father. The Son came so that we could know God. This is the, one of the primary ministries of the Son, and, and please hear me carefully. One of the primary ministries of the Son was to connect us to the life-giving relational flow of the Trinity. It's always been about relationship. God is a personal God, not a private God, a personal God. And the ministry of the Son was to take us and clean us and place us in right relationship in the life-giving flow of the Trinity. So now, as John 17 says, we're in the Father, the Father's in us, we're in the Son, the Son is in us, we're in the Spirit. I don't know how it all works, but it's relationally true. We're in this love triangle dynamic where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and they honor each other and they defer to each other and they celebrate each other and they're always pointing fingers. No, no, don't look at me, look at him. No, no, don't look at me, look at him. And we're caught up in that. The primary ministry of the Son was to unite us to himself in the Trinity. So we've been crucified with him. Galatians 2.20. We've been buried with him. Colossians 2.12. We've been baptized into his death. Romans 6.3. We've been united with his resurrection. Romans 6.5. We are seated in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2.6. We are justified, sanctified, glorified. Romans 8. We share in his righteousness. We've been chosen in him. We've been adopted in him. Romans 5. His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We are united in Christ. And everything we do is now in him. So Paul says in Ephesians 63 times, you're in Christ. We worship in him. Can I, break, can I break down a little theology of worship real quick? I'll take the laughs as a, okay. I was going to do it anyways, so maybe you already knew that. <clears throat> we don't come to this place attaining the songs that we sing. You know this, right? I know this. We don't come to this place and we sing, oh, I love God and I'll obey God and I'll, I, I surrender all. We don't come ready to do that, right? Now, if I'm honest with myself, I'm like, sometimes. Sometimes. But there's a lot of me that's not. And there's a lot of me that doesn't. We don't come ready to sing, but as we sing, it shapes us into the people we want to be. Did you hear me on that? That's why it's so important to come together for corporate worship or to join online if you're not comfortable. And I totally understand that. But I hope you're participating and singing along because you're not ready. We're not the people we sing about. But as we sing, it shapes us into being more faithful people. That's what it does. And all of our worship. I used to think, well, I, I, I've got I've to love God perfectly before I say that on the screen or else I'm not going to say it. No, no, no. All of our worship is offered through the Son, so all of our worship is pleasing to the Father every time because it's through the ministry of the Son. We pray in the Son. You ever, I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 20 years. You ever, you ever pray and you're like, I don't even know how to pray anymore. <laughs> I've been at this for so long and sometimes I feel like a, an infant. I don't even know what to say. And Jesus says, I, I pray. I'll take care of it. I'm the mediator. We pray in him. We work in him. All of our relationships is, are in him. The yaw and pitch of every day and the mundane exists in Christ because we've been united to him. Get this. We sin in him. 
had a heavy emphasis, theological emphasis in my life growing up that said, sin breaks relationship with God. So every time I sinned, I thought, well, where where did he go? And the doctrine of union with Christ challenges that and says, God doesn't go anywhere. You're in Christ. That should be both a comfort and a challenge to us. He doesn't go anywhere. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, says that God is content to dwell in smoky souls. What other option does he have? This is the son in his ministry of uniting us to the Father, uniting us to the Trinity. And this Trinity invites us to know him. The existence of the Trinity invites us to experiential learning. It's not just head knowledge. I've often heard people describe, oh, it's, there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge, and you just take the head knowledge, and then, and then what? You've got to let it sink into your heart. I agree with the idea. I don't know how that happens. What does that mean? You just think about it a little more? You just keep reading it a little more? You just sit down and say, okay, sink down into my heart? I don't understand what this means, but I do know that God wants us to know him in an existential, experiential way. Not just know things about him. In the movie Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon and Robin Williams play a powerful duo. Matt Damon is a genius, literally a genius. And Robin Williams is his therapist. And Matt Damon has a lot of challenges and some growing up to do. And one day he insults a painting of Robin Williams. And the next day Robin Williams sits down on the bench with him. And he says this, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, life's work, political aspirations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seen that. And I'd ask you about war. You'd probably throw some Shakespeare at me, right? Once more unto the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone who could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real life and real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And when we start to love God more than we love ourselves, when we don't read the scripture thinking that it gets us some type of transactional grace, when we don't show up for church because we think God approves of us more or disapproves of us if we don't, when we stop performing for our own ego and we start to really experience the love of God for who he is, we start to live life like that. We start to embody it. We actually start to change We start to become more of who God created us to be 
More like Christ is another way to say it. God wants us to experience life in the Trinity. You say, well, how does that exactly happen? I'm not sure. But I think part of it is we have to put ourselves out there. We have to do something. We have to become vulnerable, as Robin Williams said. We have to practice our faith. We have to say those things to God and to the community. We have to try and share Christ with our neighbors. We have to fail as we learn to walk. We have to do something. And then our knowledge becomes heart knowledge, experiential knowledge. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Even in the second person of the Trinity, there's more mystery. Look at this. This great high priest who's ascended into heaven. Well, who can do that? If you have to ascend into heaven, you've got to be fully God. And yet, this great high priest who has stooped down to empathize with our weaknesses and our struggles. Well, who could do that? Only someone who's become fully human. So even in the Trinity, we have this fully divine and fully human paradox. And we've got to hold those in tension. God has to be fully God. He has to be fully God. But if we lean too heavy on that side, he becomes unrelatable, irrelevant. But if we come too too heavy on the human side, then Jesus just becomes our homeboy. Do you remember those t-shirts? He just becomes buddy Jesus, where he just endorses our agenda every time and just there to say, whatever you want to do is good stuff and I'm for you. And he never challenges or confronts us or invites us to, you know, more holy living. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and we've got to hold that tension. And notice what it says. We have a high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to wake up and to feel like you can't put one foot in front of the other. How the apathy and the despair and the depression just weigh you down. He knows what it's like for you to be so anxious all the time. He knows what it's like for you to experience defeat after defeat after defeat and then a victory and the defeat. He knows what it's like for you to be numb. He gets it. He empathizes with our weaknesses. And he came to show us that's what God is like. That's what God is like. Maya Angelou, brilliant poet, wordsmith, talked about a time when she was an eight-year-old girl and she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. She spoke about having to heal from this trauma, but also how she told on the man and how he'd gone to prison. And shortly after he was released, he came back into the community and he was beaten to death by men in the community. And she saw that and it haunted her because she felt responsible for his death. She stopped talking for years. She stayed silent. She couldn't bear the weight of it. That responsibility felt like guilt and shame. Until about three, four years later, her mother was walking with her. And she had crossed the street onto the curb and she turned her shoulders to her. She stooped down, and she made eye contact, and she said, baby, you know something? I think you're beautiful, 
and you are the greatest woman I've ever met. Yes, Mary McLeod Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt, my mother, and you, you are the greatest. Maya crossed the street, got into the stop car, tears flowing down her cheeks. She stared at a wood paneling, and she thought this to herself. Maybe I am really somebody. Maybe I am really somebody. The Son shows us that we've been seen by the Father. And I wonder if that's what Jesus came to do, to take us by the shoulders and to make eye contact with us and to say, you know what? I think you're beautiful. One of the greatest persons I've ever met. And I believe in you more than you believe in yourself. I really think you are somebody. And I wonder if he just holds us there and he keeps repeating that over and over and over again until we start to actually believe it. You know what? Maybe I am really somebody. Maybe I do really have value. The son's revelation of the love of the father is what makes the gospel actually good news for every creature. And when you and I begin to understand that, it sets us free from self-condemnation. It shatters self-hatred. It unshackles self-loathing. And we begin, we begin to stand, stand more upright with our shoulders back. That's how we know we're starting to really share in the life and love of the Trinity. We're starting to really understand what the Son came to do. Let's pray together. Father, we're humbled by you. We're humbled by your love. We're humbled that you would send the Son for us. And we're grateful that we belong to you and nothing can change that. We're grateful that we've been united to you and we get to exist in relationship with you. Help us be more mindful of that. Father, some of us carry heavy, heavy burdens. May we give those to you through Christ. You can shoulder the load. You're big enough. Father, some of us have deep-seated hatred for ourselves, And we weep that that exists in some of the children of God. Would you free us? Would you unshackle that shame? Help us to know that maybe because of Jesus and because we have intrinsic value, because we exist and have been created, that we might be somebody. And may we be a community that holds up that good news for the watching world around us. Not an empire of fear, of coercion, but a movement based on love. Explained and displayed in love and sealed in love through your sacrifice. Help us trust it. Help us be those people. We pray in Christ's name, amen.